Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And in this episode, I'm talking with Ned Palmer about music, jazz, cheese eating and cheese making. Three years ago, I went on a health journey. I lost eight stone. I brought down my blood pressure. I kicked diabetes. I did it because I changed my nutrition. And for 25 years, I believed all the hype that eating cheese was bad for you. And it was just a little special treat that you could have once a year at Christmas with your mum when you visited home. And then obviously, I did ketogenic nutrition and fats became more special to me. And that brought me to a book called The Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, which described cheesemaking in Britain in the richest detail you could imagine. Through some serendipitous connections, I got to know the author of that book, Ned Palmer, and I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Ned about his journey in life, and more importantly, the best cheeses in Britain. Ned, it is great to talk to you. Hi, Tom. It's nice to talk to you too. Before we talk about books and cheese, can I talk to you a little bit about you? Yes. Because you really interest me. Oh, thanks. You interest me because it's clear that you've got fantastical obsessions and some (laughs) of them meet mine in the cheese department. So I just want to find out a little bit about how you got to the point where you wrote a best-selling book about cheesemongers in Britain. And your biog says you're a jazz musician. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, I am, I guess. It's a bit, you know, that bit in Alcoholics Anonymous where they have to stand up and say, my name's Ned. And I feel a bit like that. Like, my name's Ned and I'm a jazz musician. <laughs> yeah, I play jazz piano. I've been playing piano since I was six. And when did you get into jazz? Immediately. From the very beginning, even though I was officially learning classical my lovely classical teacher was a bit, she wasn't really into jazz, but she bought me some jazz books. She said, here's your little jazz box. You go and play with them. And in fact, I, I had an amazing jazz teacher at my school. I went to just a state secondary school in Putney and there was this jazz workshop there. So I was dead lucky. I started that when I was 13. I was the youngest kid in the class. in Macy sixth forms. I was terrified. Didn't play a note for weeks. And I came to my teacher once and I said, I've written a tune. And I played it to him. He said, Ned, that's the blues scale. I didn't know there was such a thing. I just thought I'd figured out this incredibly clever thing. But what I had done to blow my own trumpet, literally, because I played trumpet then, was pull out the blues scale out of the jazz that I was listening to and think that that was a tune. <laughs> Do you still listen to jazz? Oh, very much, yeah. <laughs> Mostly one album, kind of blue. By oh, Miles yeah, Davis, of course. Miles, which yeah, I, to, I yeah. have to try and make myself listen to other more contemporary jazz, but that is the one. It's interesting you say that because I, when I read that you were 
into your jazz. I just thought there is no better triumvirate than <laughs> cheese, red wine, and Miles Davis is there. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah. you know, you can't have one without the other in my world. It's true. And, you know, I see quite profound parallels between cheese and jazz. <laughs> so I have to put it in a way that's not too crude. I actually think that, so words like funky which originated in the very beginnings of jazz for reasons that are a little bit too crude to get into maybe in a public broadcast, but they did anyway. And for me, funkiness is a flavour attribute of some of the stronger cheeses, like a wash rind cheese, like Stinking Bishops, a Gloucester cheese. These wash rinds have these very pungent flavours, which you can describe as funky. And for me, somehow it's like onomatopoeic, the sound of some kinds of jazz, of a really crunchy sharp nine flat five seven chord is is kind of like that kind of funky cheese i don't know if that's weird but i can really feel it i've got a theory for a cheese tasting that i want to do which will be cheese and jazz where i'll have a piano and i'll play a very simple c major triad just very clean fresh simple sound and then everyone eats a very clean fresh goat's cheese like charlie westhead's paroche which is kind of two-day-old, very simple, very flesh, very clean, and it tastes like a C major triad to me. And then if you add a seventh, you're adding a bit of that funk, that edge, and that's like a cheddar. So to me, a cheddar, a good Somerset cheddar like Montgomery's, is like a seventh chord. And then if you make a really filthy, funky, crunchy chord with all your altered notes, your flat fives and your sharp nines and that, it's like a wash rind. Like Renegade Monk is a totally mental wash rind blue cheese from Somerset. And that, to me, tastes like a crunchy chord. But I haven't actually tested this on anyone yet. It might be utter nonsense. It's a fabulous idea. Thanks. <laughs> so look, you, you know, when you were a kid, you loved the trumpet, you love your jazz, you mm. play the piano. How on earth... Did you get to a point in life where you have become, in my view, the UK's leading expert on cheeses? That's a big thing to live up to, Tom. Thanks. Um, I ate a piece of cheese. It was the winter of 2000. So I used to work in a theatre. I used to write music for theatre. And I've spent that time discovering that you can't make a living doing avant-garde theatre. It doesn't really work. So my friend said, come and sell my cheese at Borough Market. Uh, and my friend is Todd Trithowan, and his cheese was, then was, was Gorwith Kefili. And I had a piece of this cheese one Saturday in, in Borough Market. And I realised that all the cheese I'd ever had before in my life was rubbish. I'd never had anything like this. And I was so obsessed that within weeks he said, look, I'll get you a job at Neil's Yard Dairy, which is the great British cheese shop, if you stop bothering me. <laughs> and that's what happened. And uh, I know, I mean, it is the Damascene moment and it came by eating a piece of proper, top quality British cheese. What were you bothering about? You were trying to understand why the cheese tasted different to the industrial stuff you exactly. buy in the supermarket. There were so many questions. Why is this so good? compared to this other cheese I've had. I used to think I liked cheese, you know, and I did, but I hadn't had anything like this. So mind-blowing. Why is it different? Why doesn't everyone just eat this? Why is it taking me 28 years to find this? And why? Because he'd bring it down from the farm every week in the in the van, and they would look different. Same recipe, exactly the same method, but they'd change across the season, or I think even with his mood, if he's a funny mood, cheese turn out funny. So that, basically, I think cheese is fractal in the proper sense of the word, that the more intense your ability to look into the cheese is, the more you find, the more complexity you find. So it's, it's eternal. You just don't run out of questions. 
So you get this uh, Gonwidka filly, which you've written about before. Yeah. You end up with your mate getting you a job at Neil's Yard. When was that? My first day at Neil's Yard Dairy was the 2nd of December 2002. I even remember the day because it was just such a, a moment. I remember my first customer. I remember what they asked for. What did they ask for? They asked, he's, he's quite posh, he came in. And so what you do is when someone comes into the shop, you have a little slice of cheese on your knife and you say, try some cheese. And this is hammered into you at Neil's Yard Dairy. You just say, try some cheese. You don't ask. You just say that. So either I'm, and my knife tip was wobbling because I was so scared, you know, so nervous, and shaking. And he totally ignored this bit of cheese. He said, now, which is better, the Keens or the Montes? And I thought, <laughs> I have no idea what that sentence even means. And I looked behind me and there were two massive cheddars, one called Keens and one called Montgomery's. So I thought, well, it must be them. So I said, well, I have no idea, but shall we try them? And I saw my new boss nodding deeply because that honesty is the core of good cheese. You, you could say, I don't know. Or, I don't know at the moment. I haven't tried it this morning. So we tried them. Uh, and that was that was my first bit of mongering, my first customer. And how long were you at Neil's Yard for? Somewhere between six and seven years. Six or seven years. Yeah, six or seven years. I had this daft idea. I come from an academic background. My, my dad was a historian. My mom was a teacher. And and I thought, you've got, to be, you've got to get a degree in it. You've got to be a proper grown-up. He's messing about with cheese. So I left the dairy once and went and did a master's in experimental psychology. Yeah. <laughs> got very interested in social psychology. And I wanted to study um, sort of Islamic extremism in young people in Britain and how people were driven into that sort of mode of being but funnily enough I couldn't get funding for a PhD in that topic <laughs> and I just came back to the dairy I couldn't I realized that's what I truly loved so that's why the amount of times indeterminate I think I ended up leaving the dairy three times it's a bit like it's somewhere between a lover and a family and a sort of cult a very healthy cult but nonetheless a kind of cult you get really into it I can see that because Neil's yard I mean in in recent sort of retail history Neil Shard played a massive role in a renaissance in people's interest in, you know, I don't know, do I call it boutique cheese or... Re, or... Yeah, I, I struggle with the names. I call it yeah. proper cheese, which is proper a cheese. pejorative, often small cheese, which sounds, I mean, small is beautiful, you know, in that sense, artisanal, traditional, farmhouse. None of those words tells the whole story. No. Although maybe traditional, traditional, traditional paints yeah. a better picture for me, maybe. I did make a distinction in the book, and I don't know if I've coined this or whether other people would make this distinction, but I would say traditional farmhouse cheese is yeah. one sort, and that would be your cheddars, your red Leicesters, your Lancashires, Kefili, and then artisan cheese for me is cheese not made by a farmer, made by a cheesemaker, often buying in the milk, and often not to an ancient traditional recipe. So Mary Holbrook, who is the godmother of British goat's cheese for the last 40 years or so, made cheeses that weren't really to a recipe. They were inspired by continental cheeses. And that for me is an artisan cheese. So I would say farmhouse and artisan. I can see that. And I can see the distinction. That's very helpful already. Good. But Neil's Yard essentially formed the market, didn't they? I mean, am I right? In the, in the book, you talk about how the guy that set it up just... Randolph Hodgson, yeah. Yeah. They scoured the country to look yeah. for yeah. farmers and artisans that were still yeah. doing little things and tried to create a market out of it. They did a huge amount for the cause of British and Irish cheese. 
And it was very much Randolph looking, traveling around Britain and, and Ireland, which I think was originally inspired when someone called Mrs. Charnley sent him some, I think it was a kind of kafili from the southwest. It just appeared, you know, on the doormat one day and it was delicious. So he might have had a bit of a moment like me. Because I think early on they just bought three cheeses from a wholesaler, some cheddar, some Stilton and some Cheshire or something, and they were quite factory cheeses. He had a moment of revelation, and then he started hunting down the existing farmhouse or artisan cheeses. And that was a bit difficult because the Milk Marketing Board, which is a sort of odd, almost Stalinist organisation in a way, was quite strict about who could make cheese. And some people were making it in a way that was only really semi-legal, so they had to keep quiet about it. And there's a story in Neil Jardieri legend, I've yet to check if it's 100% true, that Randolph was actually chased off a farm with a shotgun because they thought he was a spy from the milk marketing board. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if it's not strictly true, there is some, you know, a sense that, that was happening. I mean, this is the fascinating thing in your book, where there's two things in the book. You, it's like the dead hand of the state. The first is the Stalinist construct, the Milk yeah. Marketing Board, which I think it was, it was 1933, the Milk Marketing Board. I think it's 1933, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me the story of how they nearly killed artisanal or farmhouse cheese. What it was, and I still struggle to understand how this worked, but basically the Milk Marketing Board bought your milk off you, Tom, if you're a dairy farmer, Tom, bought your milk off you and then sold the milk back to you for you to make your cheese with. And the difference between those prices was your profit. So what they would say to small cheesemakers is it's not worth it. It's not worth the bureaucracy, so you can't make cheese. You can't have the milk. We're going to buy it off you and take it to the depot, as far as I understand. So smaller producers ended up having to close down. So they and ended up with perverse disincentives. Exactly, perverse with... disincentives. I mean, the other thing that is chilling, if you read the documents, the government papers on which the Milk Martin Board was based, they sent people out you know, to figure out what's going on. The only way they talk about cheese making is a way to use up surplus milk that hasn't been sold in the liquid milk market. So then you're getting rubbish old milk and you're seeing cheese making instead of a cultural treasure, which is what cheese making is, you know, cultural treasure in, in, in Britain. You're just saying, oh, it's just a way to use up surplus product. So then you don't care if you've got making quality cheese. Your milk might be days old because it's been sitting in a liquid milk market somewhere, you know. So in that sense, because it saw cheese making as a sort of addendum, it was really destructive just in that way of looking at it. And did cheese making, I mean, there was obviously a sort of, in the book you talk about the increasing industrialisation of cheese making from 1870, Mm. but the Milk Marketing Board exacerbated that kind of do it big, do it in a sort of factory style. Yeah. And then you had the war, the World War II, which... This is rationing, right? Rationing, exactly. And the function, the unintended consequence of rationing was they needed hard cheese because they were cutting the worst point for any cheese fancy was i think 1942 when the cheese ration was an ounce a week doesn't even cover a cracker it's a dreadful thought dreadful it's just appalling uh people look at me funny when the worst thing i can think of to say about world war ii is you only got an ounce of cheese a week (laughs) but in order to do that you needed a very hard dense cheese so they basically forced people to change their recipes to produce a cheese that you could cut into those small bits. Also, they, they, they considered, I think they being the Ministry of Food, that large hard cheeses were the best way to use and store milk. So they centralised that production. They thought it was inefficient to have 
old Tom Watson making his tiny little sheep's milk soft cheeses in you know in a village outside uh, Kidderminster or something. So it was inefficient. So you're not allowed to do that anymore. We're just going to centralise this production. Okay, it worked. We won the war. Uh, <laughs> um, but there is yeah. some argument that it would have been more efficient to leave production in in a more localised way and for people to buy that food in a more localised way. And I think that's an argument that's still going on. But the yeah. effect was at the end of the war, a, lo- a lot of the traditional cheesemakers had stopped making. And when those restrictions were taken off, some of them, sadly, elderly people, usually women, because it's usually women who made the cheese, were dead. Or they, they got their guaranteed check from the MMB and they didn't want all the pain and physical effort and risk of making cheese when they could just sell milk. So we lost, I think, hundreds, literally hundreds of farmhouse cheesemakers. And this is the interesting thing, because actually what I find so fascinating about the book, you talk about sort of cycles of cheese making. So yeah. I forget which county it was. Was it Sussex? So, so back in 1690, everyone's complaining about the quality of Sussex cheese because it's really Suffolk. hard. Suffolk. Suffolk East, East, right. East Anglia. Yeah, Suffolk yeah, Bangley used to call Tell me that story. What was going on in 1690 in Suffolk? So the Suffolk, well, East Anglian cheesemakers of Suffolk and Norfolk and Essex were doing incredibly well before then because they got the contract to supply the English army in the Hundred Years' War with the French. And so they were doing really well. And they were right next to London, so they they could get their produce into London. The London cheesemongers were an immensely powerful cartel. And they wanted to sell butter, which was a high-value product that you sell to posh people. You know the rich get the cream. It's literally true. Poor people get skim milk cheese. Rich people get butter and full-fat cheese. And the cheesemongers of London forced the East Anglian cheesemakers to skim their milk to give them lots of butter. And they would say, listen, Fred, for every pound of cheese you send us, you've got to send us half a pound of butter. And then they kept upping that percentage over the centuries till by the 17th century, when you're talking about, it's more the middle, 1650 or so. Suffolk cheese was such a terrible reputation. It was called Suffolk Bang or Suffolk Wang. And a wang was a bit of leather used to make a boot. Uh, It was so bad that even the sailors of the Royal Navy who ate 100-year-old salt beef and hardtack biscuits with weevils in, wouldn't eat the cheese. <laughs> they couldn't even sell it to them. And they actually went to Parliament, the East Anglian cheesemakers, to try and get the London cheesemakers to stop doing this to them, but it didn't work. In 1650, a ship called the St James turned up in the port of London from Cheshire with a shipment of Cheshire. And some farmer had just done this on the off chance it didn't seem really economic to send cheese all that way but he thought i'll give it a punt and it was fantastic cheese it became immensely trendy it was a little bit more expensive than suffolk bang but people just snapped it up and it went from one shipment to hundreds of shipments to tens hundreds thousands of tons over the next few decades and so cheshire became the governor county for cheese making and took the crown from east anglia so thoroughly that when I was a younger monger, I didn't know you could even make cheese in East Anglia. I didn't think the land was right because I'd never heard of cheese from there. And I know it was utterly wrong. I mean, now one of our greatest cheeses, Baron Bygod, is a Suffolk Bree Star. It's absolutely glorious. So you talk about these cycles. 
And then yeah. in the book, of course, what you say is actually now there's a renaissance in artisan and farmhouse cheese making yeah. in Britain, and it started in the 1980s. Why is it, Neil Giard was part of that story, yeah. but what, what yeah. else was going on there? I think the best answer to that question is, is, is from a lovely woman called Val Bynes, who's a great cheesemaking teacher and taught everyone from the 70s onwards. So many cheesemakers owe their, uh, this legacy to her. And I said, how come, Val? What happened? And she said, well, it was The Good Life the tv program no because it's sitcom you know about people being self-sufficient and people looked at it and thought oh, that sounds really fun i want to do that and there was a bit of an economic downturn this is mid to late 70s economy is a bit screwy but people were getting big redundancy payouts so they would use that to set up a little farm and make some food that was val's theory her other theory was that package holidays had got going and people were off in Spain having this fancy Manchego or in France having some fancy Loire Valley goat's cheese and they wanted to make that because I was saying, how come they weren't making a Red Leicester or Cheddar or, you know? And she said, well, they wanted these fancy foreign cheeses. So the Renaissance for me in one way really started with people who didn't come from a farming or artisan tradition also borrowing from continental styles because we'd lost so much of our tradition as well. I also think that cheese by then, the factory made cheese was overwhelming the market. It's not as interesting to be blunt. And I think people were bored of that and they wanted interesting flavours. And I, I think it's no coincidence that camera campaign for real ale started at the same time and the campaign for real bread. And I think for me, there's something lovely about humans is we want variety, we want excitement. And if we can't go and buy it in a supermarket, we'll make it. It's interesting you mentioned the good life because, I, I mean, here we are, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you. We're just beyond the first month of yeah. official lockdown. And if you follow the middle classes, as I do frequently on my social media channels when I'm communicating <laughs> with the outside world, they're desperately showing you pictures of their sourdough. Yeah. I've even done it myself. Have you? Their new vegetable patches. Yeah. You know, I'm growing carrots, yeah. beetroot, celery, stuff in the garden now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm following more cheese mongers than ever before, mainly through your book. The classic really? example of the package holiday uh, hybrid is... Yeah. It might be Yorkshire Pecorino, which is a lovely yes. story, isn't it? Do you want Mario to just tell Alanis. us about Tell me that story before I go back to the good luck. So Mario, I think, Mario Alianas, if I say it right, he's from Sardinia and he has been making a Pecorino, which is a hard-ish, can be a hard sheep's milk cheese, and he's actually using bacterial cultures that come from Sardinia. So I love that. He's, he's using good Yorkshire sheep's milk, and Sardinian cultures. You know, the, the French have this idea of terroir, which is about the character of food comes from the soil, from the local climate. So for me, this is, he's mixing Sardinian terroir in the form of its native culture with the, the terroir of Yorkshire milk. And the cheese I think you've had is his fresh pecorino. And often we think of pecorino as quite hard, cheddar hard, even parmesan. But this is a fresh one. It's a supple, unctuous, delicate. It's a fantastic cheese. And for me, yeah, the Renaissance is still going because that cheese is a couple of years old, I think. So it's a lovely, there's, it's like a wave or a set of waves that are still, I don't know, what do waves do? Waving? Rolling? Yeah. Back to the lockdown thing yeah. and the middle classes. Uh, I, I talk to my sourdough bread making neighbours in my town in Worcestershire 
uh, and I told them I was going to talk to you today. And I said, is there any, you know, basic cheese questions that I could ask the country's expert on? <laughs> and it's funny because everyone has a question about cheese. They've all got an interest. They don't, cheese is like a mystical product to them. So can I just ask you some novice questions? Please do. One of my neighbours said, how is it that mould can be a toxin in some circumstances, but can be key to making a great cheese? And how does the mould make the cheese so tasty? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I've looked after a lot of cheese, and so I've watched moulds working in the cellar. And this is not answering your question yet, but I did want to say that when I worked in the cellar at Mills Yard Dairy, looking after cheese, turning them, patting them, rubbing them, which is an actual job. It's a craft. The, the French call it affinage. So a person who does it is an affineur. I used to feel a sense of love for all the mould working away, <laughs> ripening the cheese. There's such an affection for it, which I guess can sound strange. I suppose it's this one thing is about the particular strains of mould that are, are not toxic. So penicillin, obviously, is a very beneficial mould for us because it creates, um, well, it's an antibiotic. The blue mould in cheese for your Stilton is a form of penicillin called penicillin rot 40. So obviously the species of mould and then the strain of mould within there is a crucial thing. Uh, and there can be moulds that are toxic, just like there are mushrooms that are toxic and mushrooms that are good to eat. Are there any moulds that can give you an hallucinogenic experience with cheese like mushrooms? <laughs> not, not that I have discovered yet. I, I do believe that cheese is psychoactive. One, because it's when you have really, really, really great cheese, it just makes you happy. You know? And like does. you were saying earlier on about eating and when you discovered that fat's good and you can have nice fat, you know, when you discover that you can eat delicious food and that is actually healthy and it's mentally healthy. Let me jump in again. Next neighbour. <laughs> yeah, so I go to the next neighbour. Again, yeah. sourdough bread-making neighbour. She says to me, I make paneer at home. Mm. But I want to know how I can age a cheese at home. And yeah. also, is there a substitute for rennet? Because I can't get any rennet at the moment when I'm making my cheese. Really interesting. So paneer is a really interesting form of cheese because it isn't fermented. When you make paneer, you add lemon juice or citrus of some citric acid of some form to milk and it coagulates the milk protein. It, it knits it together and that holds in the fats and lets the moisture out. So you get a kind of solid, but you don't get a particularly solid um, cheese. So it's not going to keep as long. I'm not sure how much you could age paneer, given it would be of a higher moisture. When you make cheese using the other method, you ferment the milk with your bacterial culture. You're converting lactose, milk sugar into lactic acid. And I think one that is increases acidity and decreases moisture, which makes your cheese keep longer. But also you get the more interesting flavours from the bacterial culture. So if your neighbour wanted to age cheese, I would definitely go for the using a starter culture to ferment it way rather than the, the lemon juice paneer method. As for getting hold of rennet, I cannot believe there's a national rennet shortage. I wouldn't put it past them. It's like the bread flour. You know, I don't feel that the, the shortage has been caused by a poor crop, it's caused by everyone wanting to bake. Yeah. The company to buy rennet off is Hansen, which is a Danish company who I think for a while were responsible for all the rennet in the world. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. -E but also Westcombe Cheddar, 
Tom Calvert down at Westcombe Cheddar in Somerset. Also, I think he sells cultures and he might sell rennet. It's really interesting, this. On, on the, she's getting the rennet, but is there actually like home brew in the 70s? Are, are people actually fermenting and aging cheese at home rather than uh, on farms? So t- tell me, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I, I, I'd love to do this. So there is the book on the subject is Homemade Cheese, I think it's called. It's by Paul Thomas. Paul is, I described him in the book as demandingly brilliant. He has a brain the size of a planet. He comes to cheese making from the microbiological background. So he's he's got the detail. But this book will tell you how to make all forms of cheese. And it is something people have got interested in. I often get questions about it when I do my cheese tastings. Like with home brewing, for me personally, because I know loads of fantastic cheesemakers and loads of great brewers, on the whole, I don't bother because they've been doing it for generations or decades yeah. and they're really good at it. And mine would be rubbish. But when you talk to, so Todd Trithown, who, you know, my first cheesemaker makes the Gorth Cavilli, when he made his first batches of cheese, he said, Ned, I was pleased that they turned out round. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, he expected them to be God awful. So I think one thing you've got to, if you're going to make some cheese, fight, you know, go ahead. It's a great way to understand the processes behind cheese, you know, the techniques and the microbial processes. Well, what would it cost you to set up a home fermenting cheese operation? Well, I mean, in a sense, apart from buying some starter culture and some rennet and some good milk, nothing. Because you could use a saucepan, a colander, you want a, a muslin cloth, you want a spoon. Just thinking about, you go back to our, prehistoric forefathers or foremothers uh making cheese in 4000 bc which is when the first evidence of cheese making appears i don't think they had a load of complicated kit i think they had some clay beakers maybe some had holes in to strain out the way you know very simple kit so you don't need definitely not to start off with i wouldn't get any fancy kit you know you see some bloke and he's gone out running this would be familiar to you tom and he's got all the kit he's got a special watch and he's got his you know he's spent thousands of pounds and you know and i'm thinking mate it's not going to make you any fitter <laughs> just just go for a run and then yeah, and then get I don't know. millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
So, Ned, when we originally said that we would do this, we were obviously going to record it in the same room, and I was going to con you into bringing six of the country's <laughs> best cheeses in, and we were going to do a cheese tasting together. Yeah. Now, obviously, we're locked down, and we can't do that. So I have bought, by mail order, from the Dairy Courtyard in Yorkshire, a big round of Kirkham's Lancashire cheese. And before I open it, first of all, I want to say, how are these cheese makers surviving in yeah. lockdown? Because presumably they're finding it hard for people to come and buy the products. The fact that you've got Kirkham's Lancashire is just so perfect for answering that question because Kirkham's is the, the poster boy for the troubles that British and Irish cheesemakers have been going through. Also, it's one of my favourite cheeses of all time, and I think one of the greatest cheeses in the world. And as a proper traditional Lancashire, it's an uber British cheese. You just couldn't have picked a better cheese. So what happened to Graham, cheesemaker, makes Kirkham's, is that before lockdown or before COVID, he was selling about 1,300 kilos of cheese a week. In the first week of lockdown... He sold 90 kilos of cheese, which was crushing. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you could see it. I mean, he's, you know, he's a tough old Lancastrian farmer, you know, but to see, hear it in his voice was quite something. And that was mainly because the restaurants were the huge wholesale customers for Graham and for so many, all the cheesemakers. That's where the big orders, the big bulky orders are coming in from. But basically, we, being the cheesemongers of Britain, just went mental and started telling everyone to buy cheese. I made a list for my website of all the cheesemongers around Britain and Ireland who are offering mail order and deliveries and local deliveries and collections and so on. And it's just really beautiful how much it's taken off. And there's such a buzz around buying cheese now. And the, the point is, you can't get this stuff from the supermarkets, really. You have to go to the independent shops. And so we were saying to them, listen, you've got to get, you know, get to the cheesemongers, the independent shops. And they have been. And he's now, uh, a few days ago, I found out that from the Courtyard Dairy, where you got yours, they've sold 200 kilos of Graham's cheese in a week. And that's oh. just them. Hello, that's so fantastic. So the success story, just in a few weeks. It doesn't mean that, you know, we've got to not be complacent. You've got basically, this is lovely, so to do your patriotic bit for Britain and for our cultural treasures and to keep people in work because obviously they all employ people, so it's about rural employment. What you need to do is buy really fantastic cheese and eat it. So, Ned, this is the bit that we've all been waiting for, or yeah. certainly I've been waiting for, and I'm sure you have. I, I've now got this Kirkham's in front of me. It's probably yeah. about the weight of a bag of sugar, and it's yeah. round. About a kilogram, I reckon, in a sort of transparent cellophane wrapping. Yeah. What, is that what they call a truckle? Well, yeah, I'd call it a truckle. There's a bit of argument. I call that small one a truckle, and then his yeah. sort of normal sized ones are about 10 kilos. I'd call a wheel, or even a imaginatively a cheese. A cheese. Okay. A cheese, yes. So now I'm imagining that this cheese is wrapped in cloth. Is that right? And the cloth, if you touch it, would have a sort of buttery feel to it. It looks a bit like it's got, it's in marzipan. It looks so beautiful. I can exactly picture it. So this is 
these cloth wrapped cheeses are a uniquely British style of cheese. Uh, cheddar is traditionally wrapped in cloth. Lancashire, Red Leicester, Cheshire. Uh, they're wrapped in cloth and then the cloth is rubbed in some sort of fat. And in the case of Lancashire, it's butter. So if you smell it, it will have a buttery smell. And that cloth plus fat is the perfect optimal covering for your cheese that allows it to breathe. So it's not getting too pappy and moist inside, but is also sealing in the lovely moisture. So I'm looking at it now. I've got a knife. Have you, you got a bread it? knife? I've got a bread knife. Yeah. Is that right? X, that is correct. So what you want to do is score the cloth. Score the cloth. I would cut it along its long axis. So you're going to cut it. If you're looking down on top of your cheese, it's a circle. You want to cut yeah. that circle in half by yeah. scoring the cheese on a line all the way around the whole cheese. Okay. And you're just cutting with a bread knife until you feel it go through the cloth, but yeah. not really biting into the cheese. Okay. I'm doing that now. That's that's relatively easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it feels fantastic though. Okay. It's oh. such a great cheese. Oh. Can you smell it? Yeah, I'm just looking at it. It's like, oh, it's just layered upon layer. It, 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 so it, it, it could almost be butter. So you've hit the nail on the head. When Graham has really nailed it, he calls it butter crumble. Is that right? Is that That's right? his name for the texture of the cheese. Yeah, and it's like a Goldilocks texture between buttery and crumbly. What I also love is the phrase when he really nails it, because even if you're an amazing cheesemaker, which he is, and so experienced, he's, you know, they've been making cheese, he's been making cheese for all his life. You don't always get a perfect cheese because cheese just is willful, does its own thing. So you can do everything right, and you don't always get an optimal batch. But it sounds to me from your reaction like you have got an optimal batch. I've, I've stopped taking your instructions. I've pulled you the tights off. I'm, I'm, in, I'm into it already. <laughs> Excellent. So do you want to... So shall I tell you how to taste cheese mindfully? Yes, please do. So what we do, and I've got a piece of Kirkham's here as well. The first thing to do is what you've done is to look at the cheese. Observe the colour and the texture. And one thing you can tell from Lancashire is that it's a cow's milk cheese because the colour is a kind of creamy yellow bit of sunset yeah. in there. It's not bone white. If it was a bone white cheese, it would be a goat's cheese or ah, sheep's milk cheese. The right, rich, okay. creamy yellow tells me it's cow's milk. You can okay. see those lovely kind of fissures and in it where that lovely open crumbly texture is. is yeah, they're like waves like waves yeah it's a beautiful thing so the next thing is to squeeze your cheese now you can only do this with your own cheese you can't squeeze anyone else's cheese so don't go into the courtyard dairy and squeeze <laughs> cheese you'll be upset yeah but so thinking about texture so i'm giving it a bit of a squeeze and a little bit of a rub and what i feel is that beautiful goldilocks texture it's kind of coming apart in my fingers it's butter crumble and as i rub it in my fingers i get a bit of residue a bit of moisture but not it's not coating my fingers with moisture. So with cheese graders, even in industrial cheese making, where they've got all sorts of instruments to test their cheese, the first thing they do, professional cheese graders, is to squeeze the cheese and rub it in their fingers. And you can tell it's got that nice Goldilocks texture. Then the thing is to smell the cheese. So in the wine business, they talk about nosing, but we're less posh in the cheese business. So we just smell it because aroma is a huge part of experiencing flavour. So you'll get butter i get a little bit of savory it really smells like crumble actually when you're making crumble for apple crumble 
Yeah, it smells like pastry. You're right. You can smell it. It really smells like pastry. Yeah, it's beautiful. So now you can eat it. And as you eat it, think about the narrative structure of the flavour. A good cheese, like a good wine, should have a structure. It should have a beginning. The first flavour notes you get, as it's softening in your mouth, you'll feel the flavour developing. And then as you finish your morsel, even though you swallowed it, there should be length, there should be a finish. So you get that beginning, middle and finish. And as you're tasting, you can think about how that flavour develops. It's basically telling you a story. Oh, God, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so nice to hear you. I can really feel it. <laughs> and it's different tasting cheese like that. You know, when you taste it in that conscious way, you're much more mindful and aware. I'm afraid for me... You go to a cheese like Kirkham's and then you kind of realise that what you buy in the supermarket, it's like going from instant coffee to fresh coffee. You can't really go back to instant again. It is difficult. It's very satisfying, that that intensity and complexity of flavour. It's a whole other experience. Yeah. I'm going to stop eating it while I ask you the final question, though. Yeah. I've left frontline politics you could say I've had an epiphany. You could say I've had a midlife crisis. And I'm looking what to do next. And I, I, I'm getting slightly obsessed about this. Good. But when I Googled cheeses made in Worcestershire, where I live, I couldn't find any cheesemaker in the entire county of Worcestershire. There were loads next door in Herefordshire. And it may be there's cheesemakers in Worcestershire that I couldn't find online. But there's not many. And they're certainly not well branded. No. How can I become a Worcestershire cheesemaker and build a little community of people who want to eat my speciality cheese? What have I got to do to be a cheesemaker? Gosh, that's a lovely question. Uh, first, you need to learn how to make cheese. And I would definitely start doing it at home. And I would go to the Welbeck School of Artisan Food on the Welbeck Estate in Nottinghamshire, and they have courses on cheesemaking which are excellent. I'd say the gold standard of cheesemaking. And plenty of cheesemakers I know, including people who've made cheese for years, go on these courses. So I would learn. I'd also see if I could find out if there were traditional Worcester cheeses, and I bet there were. So I would, I would look and see if I could find anything because I'd be looking for what was the cheese the land wanted me to make. You know, what cheese fits in with the soil and the local climate of my area. If I couldn't find that, I would say that cheeses, we call them the territorials, cheeses like Cheshire, Red Leicester, Lancashire, Wensleydale, might be your best bet because they're made in nearby counties and there would be similar sorts of method. That would be one way. The other way would be to totally go off on a limb and, and, and design my own cheese, which would be great fun. You would need to make the cheese that you really wanted to make, that you loved, because yeah. it's backbreaking work. It's relentless. It's the same. The virtue of cheese making is to try as much as possible to do exactly the same thing every day on your own in a dairy. Not many people to talk to. So you really need to love it. You need to get good milk. So you need to find a farmer as close to you as possible because you don't want the milk, milk's gentle and delicate. It doesn't like being bashed around, so you don't want it to travel too far. Yeah, yeah and then start making loads of cheese and expect it to fail. Okay. <laughs> and cultivate a certain kind of humility, I think. <laughs>
you can see from our conversation why I asked Ned to be a person of interest on today's show. He's a natural enthusiast. He's an expert in his chosen field of cheese making and cheese mongery. And I love talking to him. And I'm definitely going to keep him on speed dial on my phone for future cheese tips. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.